Hello, everyone. We wanted to continue our theme of resolutions. And what better resolution than dry January? Um, Jeremy, have you heard of dry January? Yes, I have heard. Of, I have heard dry January. It is everywhere. <laughs> it's the hashtag of places to be these days. Well, I mean, certainly abstaining from a substance or a habit like alcohol or tobacco or you know, it's a very common resolution. Uh, according to CNN, with a food and drink research firm called CGA in 2022, 35% of legal aid U.S. adults skipped alcohol for this entire month. Um, seems to be a, a trend that's growing in popularities as drinkers kind of look to reset their bodies in the new year. Uh, and that's an increase from about 21% of the um, population who completed dry January in 2019. So personally, I find those numbers kind of encouraging. I think it's it's great to see a trend of people examining their relationships with alcohol. Um, I, I see it kind of in, in the younger, kind of the Gen Z population. Uh, I don't know. I just find it really kind of exciting and fun. And I think it, it's rad to see it kind of to be cool to abstain or choose to abstain or you examine how we think about alcohol. And I, I'm, uh, I'm excited that the kids are all right. Um, yeah, it's funny. I don't want to crap all over your optimism, but like the, I, I, I saw those stats and I was like, holy cow, that's a lot of people that are deciding not to drink uh, during January. Um, yeah. And granted, that's obviously a, a, a survey meant to reflect sure. the population, but you know, there's no way to know if it was accurate in that way. But still, like that means that 35% of people felt that maybe they don't have a good relationship with alcohol or they felt like they needed to go a month without it, I guess. I don't know. It's funny that you looked at it that way and I looked at it the other way. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, and, and continuing in, in like a positive slash negative theme, as we spoke about in our last episode about talking about how potentially we could achieve a higher success rate for our goals that we set or our intentions that we set for ourselves uh, in the new year. And so, you know, abstaining from alcohol or quitting alcohol or quitting smoking or quitting whatever other substance that you feel like you may have an unhealthy relationship with. These are kind of considered avoidance goals, right? And we talked about before that really, you know, an approach or a positive goal of adopting a new behavior seems to be correlated with a higher propensity to to achieve it. Uh, so, you know, these the avoidance type goals can be difficult to achieve. And particularly with 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 abstaining from alcohol, you know, there there's sort of this overwhelming pressure to succeed. Abstaining from alcohol can be sort of isolating. Some people may not feel comfortable in sharing this type of resolution outwardly um, as other common ones, like I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to stop being on my phone as much, or I'm going to sleep a little bit better. Um, and I think that may be due to some societal pressures of if I'm if I'm outward in my thoughts of saying, hey, I think I'm going to cut down on drinking. Does that mean that I'm admitting to having a drinking problem? Will I be considered a problem drinker if I state that I want to cut or cut down or stop drinking? And then it also seems like it can be it's kind of an all or nothing thing. You know, if the goal is to stop completely, that, that success is a very high bar. And, you know, what do we do if and when we inevitably, potentially, you know, uh, uh, slip? So can we can we give ourselves grace for that? So I think to continue on our series on resolution, let's talk, talk today about substance, namely alcohol use, um, kind of the nuances that with the use and abuse and dependence, as well as the psychology of addiction. And then really, how can we make realistic resolutions and attainable goals when it comes to our relationship with alcohol? Um, and thankfully, we have an expert in addiction medicine to help us understand this more. So, Jeremy, are you excited to talk about our relationship with alcohol? Yeah, I can't wait. Let's dive in. 
Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. Welcome back. We're ready to get started analyzing our relationship to alcohol here. And so we'd start off by introducing our esteemed guest here. So we have uh, Dr. Gail Bach, who is a psychiatrist and a specialist within addiction medicine at Rush University Medical Center. She is director of the outpatient addiction clinic at Rush University Medical Center and also directs the Addiction Medicine Fellowship Program, which is pretty cool that we even have fellowships teaching people addiction medicine these days, because that is not something that's been around forever and something that clearly needs a lot of focus. She treats a a, a wide range of conditions within this area, specifically alcohol and drug problems and also behavioral addictions such as gambling and then mood problems to go along with these. She graciously gave us a fancy name for this, Treatment for Persons with Co-Occurring Disorders. So with that, welcome to the pod, Gail. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. So we're going to focus on alcohol. I want to start a little bit just with a broad question to you. People seem to have a very complex relationship with substances and alcohol and specifically, um, you know, love-hate type of situation. And it seems around this year, there's like a litany of resolutions to stop drinking or, or frankly, other substances as well. Do you see this as well in your practice? Is this a situation where, where you're hearing more and more people take on these sort of things at the beginning of the year? Yeah, you know, I, I, yes and no. Um, you guys were talking about dry January, and um, in your words, Jeremy, not to crap on your optimism, but we're also hearing about California dry, um, which is, uh, and especially in our young population, no alcohol, um, but just cannabis, um, yes. which is a whole other podcast, right? But, um, yeah. uh, but you know, sure, it's definitely a time I think when um, people choose to rethink. I, I like the verbiage you guys use because people are sort of rethinking their relationship with substances, whether it's tobacco, alcohol, you know, fill in the blank. And I, I see that as optimistic, right? Because we get or even changing the language, right? Because I don't think it's complete abstinence anymore. I think people are sort of changing their viewpoint, right? So even sort of the verbiage, like, let's look at our relationship. Let's rethink the way we drink. And um, I think the possibilities are, it's a big menu, right? So people are choosing maybe to cut down or um, drink only on the weekends or drink less. And that's very different than the way we used to look at things, um, what we used to offer. You know, 30 years ago when I was a resident, I told people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop drinking and then come back and see me. And no one ever came back. And um (laughs) It took me a little time to understand that maybe I needed a little more training, um, which we never had, you know. So that that's one of my favorite things to do now is um, now that we're understanding more about this to pass on training, um, which which we do um, with our medical students, residents, and fellows because we got no training and we didn't understand much about this, and now we do and understand that you know it all depends who's doing the drinking. And um, what's the relationship and what does it mean? Um, Because it's not a one size fits all. Um, So I think it's a very promising time for us to be able to take a look at our own relationship with substances and behaviors and um, to guide our patients. That's excellent. I like your summation there, Gail. You said one size 
you know, doesn't fit all. Certainly. Are there current recommendations, you know, generally for like what's considered healthy alcohol use? Like, yeah. How would you counsel yeah. someone? Yeah. So this is so fascinating. It used mm-hmm. to be so confusing to teach. And even when I taught it, I'd be like, this is really not making much sense when I give these guidelines. Um, guidelines are changing. So um, what we're going to find um, is that I, I think within the next few years, we as physicians are going to be saying that really no alcohol use is healthy. I mean, come on. It's like how much cake is healthy? That's, we're not talking about that. Like if we want to reduce heart disease, eat some grapes. We're not going to be recommending alcohol to reduce heart disease or strokes. It makes absolutely no sense. And a lot of these studies have been funded by uh, beverage companies. I mean, the whole thing is going to be unpacked in a very different way. So I think when we once found ourselves saying, oh, for you, one, you know, for a woman, one drink a day, for a man, two drinks a day, like all, all of these guidelines are changing. And the World Health Organization just came out with this really bold statement that's really controversial, but it's not. And the statement is as simple as this. No amount of alcohol is healthy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a toxin. It, yeah. it, it's a toxin. It causes strokes. Sure. It causes heart, right? So like all these complicated studies recommending, you know, this much alcohol for this. Look, it all depends on who's doing the drinking, right? But what, um, if, it's, what if it's a French red wine and I need to get my resveratrol? So, that... so, so that that's really like, it's just mind boggling. So, it's you know, drink but... some grape juice and walk on a treadmill which is what we're talking about. Right. I mean, these studies so, are very complex and we're not as physicians going to recommend that you drink a glass of wine for heart health. Right. That's all going to be taken back. That's not to say that one can't have a glass of wine for enjoyment. One can eat a piece of cake, but it all depends on who's doing the consuming right? We can't make blanket statements like that. It's irresponsible. So the guidelines are going to be changing and it's going to be a lot simpler for us not to recommend drinking, right? We can talk about who's doing the drinking and drinking is neither good nor bad. It's something that people are going to choose to do. So we've been trying to finesse these guidelines, but, but really they're going to change and it's going to be as simple as, look, it's really not good for your health. Okay. Neither is tobacco. Okay. It's a free country. You know, be- behaviors within moderation are, are, are what we do as people. We can choose to do whatever we want, but we have no risks and benefits. And again, it all depends on who's consuming the alcohol, right? Well, you just ruined the everybody's favorite part of the Mediterranean diet. I um, know, I know, I know. I feel like if you're listening to this podcast the way that I was just listening to that, you're saying to yourself, that makes a lot of sense. Alcohol is not good for me. But if I want to have it, I can still have some. In the words of my, my mentor, may he rest in peace, like it all depends. Right? Right. We're not going to make blanket statements, yeah. right? If you're healthy and you choose to have a glass of wine, as long as you're not getting behind the wheel, you have a glass of wine. But it all depends, right? Does, I think it's a really fascinating discussion to have with our, our patients about, you know, um, if they're interested in drinking less or if they're thinking about their relationship with alcohol, what's going on? And that's really where we want to start the conversation with our patients. 
what's going on with you know whatever substance or behavior that's we want to screen everybody you know are you doing too much of any substance or behavior and is it affecting your life right so we always look for loss of control consequences from use um cravings um uh, things like that and we can start a conversation and see where that person is at and everybody's different and has um uh different genetics, different yeah. uh, uh, risk factors. Everybody's different, right? So we, we, we have to take all those factors into consideration when we outline with our folks what are their goals, right? And okay. what, what would they, they like to see change? I like the summary of the things that you look for when you're talking through people's behaviors or relationship to alcohol, because I would imagine that the vast majority of people who are analyzing their relationship to alcohol are not ending up in your office, at least not initially, right? Um, you know, like for people to end up in front of somebody who specializes in addiction medicine, it usually means that something has gotten to a certain level that they feel they need help. Yeah. The same way that uh, we see people in our office for, you know, sports medicine conditions and, you know, the vast majority are not sitting on something that's bothering them just a little bit for a few days. Right. right. Um, and so I think that, that that giving people examples of ways that they can, you know, think about their relationship to alcohol. Like, do I have cravings for it? Or is it a situation where if I decide I don't want to have one, I can actually do that? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like, am I, I, one of the things you said, which I think shows up in the DSM all the time in, in terms of like the things that get diagnosed for psychiatry is, is affecting my life. Yes. Right? Am I having real life consequences, consequences yes. to, to using it? I thought that was another great statement. Yeah. So, so again, I think that, that to hammer home to our listeners that like, you're probably not seeking out addiction specialists, maybe if you're listening to this, but but if you are thinking about your relationship with substances, specifically alcohol, maybe those are some of the questions you can ask yourself. Yeah. I mean, a simple definition of, of addiction would be used despite harm, right? So is your use causing you harm and are you continuing to use, right? That's, that's a simple fact. And I think one of the um, misperceptions is that people have to wait to hit rock bottom. Right. Mm -hmm. We're trying to flip the script um, that that is sort of old verbiage that's still in, you know, sort of like the AA language, because that's sort of something that made sense in 1940 um, and, and, and still sort of makes sense when people think back to their worst time. But now we're much more about prevention and the sort of waiting to hit rock bottom. It need not be right. So we're much more about prevention and arresting disease much earlier, right? So if, if a young adult is at a binge drinking stage, that the person doesn't even be diagnosed with a, a disorder, but if they're on their way to suffering some problems or risky use, that person can talk to a doctor about behavioral therapy or even medication, it does not even have to have a disorder, right? We want to yeah. arrest the disease even before it becomes a disease, right? We want to arrest the behavior, and there's so many ways to do that. On that note, I think you make a really great point there about sort of, you know, how, how we diagnose a lot of things and how, how we like to intervene early. And we look at things almost like a spectrum, obviously, with a lot of different things in, in, in health. I w I'm curious if you have some insights into some examples of consequences that uh, that that come across your mind when people are examining, you know, how they how they use alcohol. Because I think we think of the worst ones, like getting arrested or mm -hmm. having a DUI or getting mm -hmm. fired or 
losing a major relationship. But I think that there can be a little bit more subtle consequences to people's alcohol use that that may not occur to them. And I wonder if you if you could think of some examples of maybe some more subtle things that when you've counseled people that they're like, oh, shit, like, yeah, like I I, that consequence is sort of a reflection of my alcohol use. And it it didn't even occur to me. You know, Mm -hmm. do you have any ideas? Yeah. I mean, any sort of social problem loss of relationships. We're talking to young adolescents and their friends are telling them time and time again, you're a beast when you drink, you know, you're, you're losing relationships. This isn't who you are. You're binge drinking every weekend, you know, they're getting feedback, right? From family and friends who are asking us, you know, we're cut down, you're becoming annoying. Um, Your behavior is changing. So people are receiving feedback. Um, Are they able to hear that? Right. So oftentimes the signs are there, um, but people aren't able to hear them. But oftentimes that's why if we're providers and we're saying, is anyone have you ever is anyone ever been annoyed by your behavior? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes the answer is yes. Oftentimes if we just ask people to think like, have you ever tried to cut down and you haven't been able to? I think because you're talking also about major missed opportunities too. Missed opportunities. That, you know, yeah, that's yeah, better you, said. You know, I think a lot of people think of consequences as some punitive thing that slapped you in the face. And really yes. it might also be the the absence of goodness, yes. you know, or the, yeah. the, the lost productivity. You don't want to say productivity of like, I didn't make enough money, but it's more like yeah, the, that's, the, that's well the ignoring the other stuff that you care about in your life because you're so consumed with this, you know, like, this relationship you have to the, the substance. And I totally understand that of, of losing maybe even like hobbies and stuff that you like to do yeah. and connections that you've had for Things a long that time that do. are no longer there because yeah. those people don't want to be around you anymore. You yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, and and, and I think also things like, you know, not being able to sleep, um, mm-hmm. you know, not feeling well in the morning, th- things like this that people somehow sort of get used to, or maybe with our younger folks, like everybody's doing it, you know, sort of normalizing the behavior. Or if you come from a family of heavy drinkers, you know, this is the norm, but it's not normal. Uh, And that's difficult sometimes for people to realize. Um, It's not normal to get behind the wheel intoxicated. It's not normal to black out, which oftentimes if people are used to doing, it's kind of the norm, but that's not normal at all. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like I, you also see people trying to treat those symptoms with other substances. And the the one I think of the most is caffeine, right? Yeah. So like if you don't feel yeah. good in the morning and you just have a yeah. bunch of cups of coffee and you're like, yeah, I don't have I don't have a problem. I know that anecdotally speaking, like that's the biggest one. I noticed that it, that if I have a drink or, or whatnot, that I notice that sometimes my sleep's not as good. And so sure. when I'm thinking of my relationship personally to alcohol and I'm sitting there saying, do I want to have a drink tonight? Sometimes I'm like, did it affect my sleep? How's my sleep been recently? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's my own anecdotal experience. Yeah. And I think sh- those clinics, by the way, not to interrupt you, but I'm, I'm just sort of popped in my mind those clinics that, you know, give you vitamin B injections and hangover uh-huh. chairs and yeah. things like that. We're sort of even encouraging it. What are you doing? Yeah, the mo- there's there's mobile ones in Vegas where they actually bring you ban- banana bags and stuff. Absolutely. For sure. Right, right, right. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, our, our show is your doctor friend. So frequently these are questions people reach out and kind of like would ask a doctor friend. And so I guess my question to you would be is if somebody like if you and I were friends and I was reaching out and saying, you know, I kind of feel like my relationship with alcohol is not not healthy right now. And I know that you do a lot with this. Like, where would you recommend I start kind of like on the first step here of trying to figure out how I want to go about this? Yeah, actually, I just had a friend email that. Thank goodness, because I've noticed him losing a lot of his quality of life for couple of years now um but he emailed me the other day and said just that so um he actually has 
some protective factors. He has a, a caring wife and family and insurance and, you know, some stuff that it working in his favor. So um, I referred him to a, a provider um, who will be able to treat him for severe alcohol use because that's what he has. And he'll respond well to a combination of medication and therapy. And he's ready, right? So he has realized now that he has a problem with alcohol. And I, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what medication he'll respond to, which will be naltrexone. And it won't be hard to treat. And that's the good news. I mean, the prognosis for alcohol use disorder is excellent. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. So now that he's ready, he just needs to be in the hands of a good provider, you know, and more and more really primary care pro providers should know how to do this. I think that's our future. Um, I, I, I think as more and more providers are educated at how to prescribe these FDA approved medications, it should be that we can, as patients, ask our primary care providers and one should be able to, you know, get started on these meds. That's happening more and more. Um, my fear is that Either he hasn't been asked by his primary care or he hasn't been able to say. I mean, I think we, we're getting better about it, but ideally his primary care would ask him and he would be able to say, yes, I think I'm drinking too much and be prescribed the right meds. I don't think we're there across the board 100% yet, but we'll get there. And if, if somebody, you know, like I find we're in this situation too, where I feel like if somebody's local to me and, or, and whatnot, I have a lot of great resources and I say, you should go see this person or whatnot. But if, you know, in, in the si situation where maybe somebody doesn't have as great a resource yes. like you to maybe point them in the right direction, mm -hmm. is there somewhere that people can maybe go to, to get information on who are good yeah. resources around them or. Yeah. So there's a SAMHSA treatment locator um, that um, people can plug their information into and be referred to to um, uh, a provider within their area. Ideally, this is supposed to work. Um, the other uh, website, which I really love for drinking, is uh, Rethinking Drinking. And that can connect a person not only to resources to learn a little bit about drinking behavior, but also you can get to the treatment locator. So, you know, it's a website that provides you a little information about, am I drinking too much? Um, what's heavy drinking, um, how can I start to cut down, gives you behavioral options, it teaches you about the FDA-approved medications. It's kind of all a, a one-stop shop, and it also sort of takes you to a treatment locator. So it's my absolute favorite resource um, where people, and it, it, it's, it's, it's a beautifully organized website really for providers and patients and family. It's awesome. awesome. We'll, we'll definitely put that in the show notes yeah. for people. Yeah, uh, just for clarity, SAMHSA is S-A-M-H-S-A, uh, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And then we'll put both of those links in the show notes. Yeah, because, Gail, I, we talk a lot about on this podcast about we hate when there's barriers to treatment, for mm -hmm. example, whether those are financial or whether those are location or insurance or um, or finding a provider. And and I think ideally, yeah, like you, your primary care provider would feel right. comfortable treating these things because you're right it, it may be depending on where somebody lives or what their insurance is or what their financial status is this may not be something that feels very accessible to them um but they may be able to you know to speak to their primary care provider and i think you know i mean i did family medicine before we you know i went into sports medicine and i i certainly feel like if a patient came to me <laughs> and was asking these questions and i didn't know you know readily available to send them to dr bosch uh, 
yeah, like if they were like, hey, here's this website I looked up mm-hmm. and here's some information about mm-hmm. naltrexone or about Ampersade yeah. or about, you know, some of the other treatments that are FDA approved, I'd probably be like, okay, let's, let's yeah. talk about it. And I think it would be lovely to to increase the, you know, the the awareness um, for 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 all healthcare providers to get to that point, because you're right, I think these this is a an extremely prevalent problem and and it is it a problem that thrives in isolation and the more that we isolate people from the uh, uh, the ability to to get clinically proven fda approved help um you know we're not helping anybody so no. I, yeah that's really helpful yeah um i'm interested to hear your impression there's there's been big growth in the what I what we call the low no market of alcohol. I guess it's not alcohol, but, but low yeah, alcohol beverages. and non alcoholic yeah. yeah. beverages. Yeah, um, um, you know, uh, uh, just to, um, as a conflict of interest uh, uh, situation, I, I both have a wife who works in the liquor industry, but also mm-hmm. is um, mostly actually working in the low no market. But also, I'm a proud ambassador of Athletic Brewing, which is a non alcoholic brewery. But I'm interested to hear from your perspective as somebody who treats people with these issues, kind of your perspective of if somebody's trying to cut back on alcohol mm-hmm. and replacing or, or or how you guys have maybe incorporated mm-hmm. that. Um, so are you talking about like zero beers and such like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's fantastic. I think more and more, um, you know, more and more restaurants. Heineken Zero is my brand. And I think, um, you know, oftentimes... Uh, we were just talking to a patient in clinic the other day, and she's like, "I yeah, just like everyone drinks around me, and my whole family pushes alcohol on me." And I'm like, well, you know, it, here's here's a thought, and she really liked that because she can, you know, people even question it. It looks just like Heineken, right? And and to her, it tastes just like Heineken, and she was really pleased. She's like, "I'm gonna try that." And we're like, "Charm, right?" But um, people more and more uh, can feel like they're. Uh, uh, you know, n- not left out. It's becoming much more acceptable, and it's available more. I think it's uh, it's great. You know, um, it, it's whatever works for folks, right? Sure. So oftentimes they're very uh, worried about how am I going to um, say no or not look I'm, like I'm not fitting in. That's that's like one of the first hurdles to get through. So I think the more uh, options there are like that, if, if that's what helps people, like, why not? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be remiss to say you should try Athletic Brewing. It's fantastic. They have wonderful, wonderful beers if you drink non-alcoholic beers. Um, in out. addition, my my other favorite movement in the non-alcoholic beverage sector is uh, Liquid Death, if you're familiar with Liquid Death. Um, Which is just water. It's, it's sparkling it's water that's delicious. It's literally it's so canned. Funny. It's it's but canned it looks like water, punk rock. I but love it, comes, it. Yeah. it looks like a beer. It's a 16-ounce tall boy, and it looks yeah. like a beer. Yeah. That's and they brilliant. leaned right into they lean right into the you can go out and have non-alcoholic beverages and not have people ask you questions that's, about that's why brilliant. you're not drinking, isn't it? It's yeah, just that's brilliant marketing, brilliant. but I love I love it. Yeah, that's great. So, no, I, I haven't heard about that. I'll check it out. I feel like we've done more brand dropping, Julie, on this one than we've ever done before. But why not? This this is turned into this is turned into the things the things your doctor friends love episode. It's like Oprah's favorite things. Yeah, right. Jeremy's favorite. Right. Right. Okay, before like when we were growing up, there was O'Doul's. That was the only yes, one I could ever think of. Wow, yeah. O'Doul's. O'Doul's and the, what was the other one? Sharps. Sharps was the other one. Wow. Um, and they were both terrible. Yeah, I bet Sorry, they were. Miller or whoever makes yeah. that. It's not good. Yeah, yeah. I can uh, I can uh, legitimately say that there's non-alcoholic versions of all the liquors on the market and coming mm-hmm. to market, things like tequilas and bourbons and 
And again, I haven't sampled all of them, but it is a huge growing market. Yeah, and, it is. And I, and I was very interested to hear your perspective as somebody who treats the condition of whether you felt that was a good thing. Because I, I personally agree that I thought it was a good thing because it would allow people to have the experiences, hopefully, that they associate with alcohol with maybe uh, not the consequences of the alcohol. Yeah, anything, so. you know, we're for, it's flexible. Anything that helps people reach their goals, right? So, I mean, it used to be this like abstinence only stuff. And that's, I mean, it's for, it, it, anybody can set any goal and a successful appointment is a return appointment. So we're, we're working with people to uh, reduce their harm in whatever, you know, whatever works. I think that's a smart point to make, Jeremy, and 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 thanks for clarifying that, uh, Gail. I I just feel like there's been this sort of insidious push to make alcohol everybody's hobby, like so, like um, being a wine connoisseur or yeah. being a you know someone who is interested in mixology. Yeah. And um and I love now that there are viable alternatives to doing these things, and then not the end product be. I'm wasted <laughs> and this is something that potentially could, you know, that I, that I could become chemically dependent on and not really mm-hmm. know it. It can, and it, and it can start as feeling like, Oh, I just, this is like my beer hobby. Mm-hmm. And then now no. I'm, now I'm drinking alcohol that has 9% ABV right. and, uh, and, and it's not a sustainable life, you know? And so I think it's funny because I think it's marketed in different ways and, mm-hmm. you know, as a lifestyle brand and how, how interesting yeah. you are now that you know how to, you know, muddle things and put egg whites and stuff and i think it's nice to have alternatives for people that may still want to do that you know that cool stuff and be a part of that hobby and not and and not feel like it's tying them to something that the who is telling us is not helpful for them so i think it's cool so one one more scenario for you the the person listening who maybe just wants to make a new year's resolution to 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 drink less Mm -hmm. it's not a good smart goal based on our last uh um, episode of like making it measurable and whatnot, <laughs> but it's going to be a common one. Uh, you know, I want to, I want to drink less. Like, would you have any recommendations on, on ways people can set themselves up for success? Yeah. Like what, what are some good ways yeah. that people can maybe set themselves up yeah. to, to, to make that goal possible? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, if a person has severe alcohol use disorder, then we're, we're going to design a formal treatment plan that includes medication and behavioral strategies. If someone has a mild alcohol use disorder or is just struggling with some uh, some overuse, we're, we're going to ask them to think about what situations they drink, how much they drink, how often they drink, and often drinking strategies like counting drinks, um, knowing how much is a binge. You know, for instance, if we're going to try to set, a, um, as long as people aren't driving, Right, if they're going to have a heavy drinking occasion, which for a man is five in a sitting or a woman is four, going to ask that person to think. Let's say it's a woman that we're going to we're going to spread that those four drinks out, um, spread them out like a drink per hour, alternated with um, water per hour on a full stomach, um, and and not uh, mixed in with other uh, psychoactive drugs uh, in a safe setting with a friend, there are ways to not put one at risk, right? So if you still want to, you know, get massively intoxicated in a safe setting, that's fine to talk to your doctor about, but minimize harm. Oftentimes we're asking patients, are you drink driving? 
that's not okay. And that's the only thing we tell our folks you can't do. Let's think it through. Are you going to take an Uber? Are you going to have a sober friend drive you? You know, but there are uh, harm reduction strategies, even when people are going to have a heavy drinking uh, evening, right? Um, And then if people are drinking too much per day, we can set a more reasonable goal. And it depends on the drinker. You know, if it's going to cause them health harm, we have to uh, think a little more seriously about, is it really a good idea to be drinking? But it's it's always a patient choice. They're driving the bus. So they have to know the, the risk. But it's certainly okay these days. It's not abstinence only. So if people want to cut down, or even if people are actively drinking, uh, medications can help them continue to drink, but less. For instance, naltrexone can help people. They can take naltrexone, continue to actively drink, but they often don't want to overdrink. It's a really remarkable medication for many folks. That's awesome. Julia, I, I actually was listening to our New Year's uh, resolutions initial episode a little bit today and reflecting a little bit on that and then hearing what Gail's saying there. I, I, I feel like it's also one that I feel like tends to be that all or nothing thing that you mentioned, where like people will say, I'm going to do a dry January. And if you get 15 days in and you have an alcoholic drink, you failed. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you went 14 days without an alcohol drink. And so like that should be a that's a small victory, in my opinion, maybe not even small. That may be a huge victory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think what I'm what I'm hearing would be is, you know, maybe make yourself really small, attainable bo- goals, especially yes. if it's something that you struggle with and, and really try to give yourself some early wins. Of like, maybe I'm going to have one less drink this week, or I'm going to drink one less day this week. And then if I do well at that, I'm going to do that same thing for another couple of weeks. And then once I'm in good shape there, I'll, I'll, I'll increase my goal. And it seems like that would make it more sustainable um, than I think the way that even dry January is a little bit just, it's too black and white for me. It's a little bit too much like you're either not going to drink the whole month. And like, if you get to the end and you're like, did you do dry January? You're like, well, I had a drink a couple of days. Did I do it? You're like, yeah. You know, I, like I, just, I had a damp, I had a damp January, yeah. not a, not a, not yeah. a soaking way. And I don't think but you should feel bad about it, yeah. you know? And like, uh, think, you know, the, the phrasing actually athletic uses is like, give dry a try, which I think is mm-hmm. kind of yeah. nice too. Like, I think that that's nice phrasing. Like, just try it and see how it feels. I think the way that Gail put it as like, basically the harm reduction strategies are like, I'm going to have a plan every time I drink. And then I'm only going to have, like Gail just said, I'm only going to have a drink an hour. I'm going to be out for three or four hours. I'm going to make sure I have water in between. I'm going to make sure I eat food. You know, I'm going to make sure I'm with somebody, you know, where it's safe. Like, I'm going to think about these things ahead of time and make a plan because it becomes very easy to change your mind when you are disinhibited after drink number three. You know, when when you're when your blood alcohol level gets to a certain area and you no longer think that that plan is all that important anymore because it's like, man, it's and she bought shots. I don't know. Like. You know, my sister just opened another bottle of wine. Why not? I'm here. Like, and so, you know, I think that's what we can come back to, Jeremy, like our our other strategies for maybe tell somebody that that's your plan or maybe tell somebody like have build accountability into that goal Mm -hmm. so that you have not necessarily someone that's that needs to be your police person, but so that you can build an accountability to that plan, because if not, then it's going to be going to be very tempting to not give a shit after a while. And then then I think the next day, that's when you feel bad and feel like you failed because you didn't adhere to your plan that you initially had. So I think I think making the plan and then trying to set yourself up for success for it by, you know, asking for help in a certain to a certain degree. I don't know what you think, Gail. 
Well, yeah, and here's what I would say about that is, you know, oftentimes we'll ask our patients, they'll give that a try. Rethink your drinking, see how it goes. And let's say the patient's tried to do that twice, right? And it hasn't worked. They've, they've you know, binged massively. Okay, then it's looking like you may have a use disorder that needs some, you know, more formal behavioral and medical treatment, right? And so that's sort of how we work with folks, right? They can try it one way. And sometimes that's all it needs, a brief intervention, a chat with a doc and, you know, keeping an eye on your behavior. But sometimes it's not possible because the use disorder is advanced in the brain, right? And the brain chemistry is driving the behavior. It's not allowing you, right? Brain chemistry is out of balance. And it's saying, like, how many drinks we're talking about? You know, I I need to, to feed my my addiction, right? I need mm-hmm. to balance out my brain chemistry and keep it going here. And so that's why sort of asking a person with moderate or severe use disorder just to not, you know, or to take it easy or willpower, it's not, that's not yeah. going to cut it, right? So it all depends on the person and the advancement of the disorder. And I love the the concept of, you know, the, 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 the verbiage of the treatment for persons with co-occurring disorders, because I think a lot of people have you know, may have thought about the concept of like, oh, I'm using alcohol to quote unquote self-medicate or even people talking about like, well, I keep smoking because the smoking reduces my anxiety, even mm-hmm. though you're, it's probably your your addiction to the nicotine that's making you anxious in the first place and the self-fulfilling cycle. So, I mean, certainly alcohol use, you know, it, 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 in certain people to a certain degree can can become its own problem. But it sounds like you you may counsel a lot of people that have, you know, co-occurring disorders that are mood disorders that this that their use of alcohol is 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 really bringing the whole ship down and that Mm -hmm. maybe people i mean i'll let you expound on that but my thoughts would be that people with really bad anxiety or depression or other neurocognitive disorders or you know that kind of stuff where it makes them feel better temporarily but then leads to a (laughs) non-sustainable self-treatment strategy yeah yeah i mean a perfect example of that is alcohol and sleep right because uh, yeah. People with heavy alcohol use uh, don't sleep well and don't feel well. But the interesting thing is sometimes with um, alcohol treatment in place, what we find is about 60% of people, their depression, their anxiety, and their sleep problems go away quickly, like in a month. And people yeah. are super surprised, but we can, we can sort of predict it, right? So everybody's different. But so it's important for us to try to help figure out who's got co-occurring depression, anxiety, you know, what's going on there. But a lot of things clear up with a few months of, of abstinence or treatment, right? And it's it's like s- slowly putting a puzzle together that people can start feeling better. And if they have depression, anxiety, a lot of people have trauma, you know, fill in the blank, instead of layering on symptom treatment by prescribing sleeping pills, blah, blah, blah. Um, oftentimes it's, it's getting that, uh, used to sort of treatment started, giving the person, you know, weekly, biweekly support, getting some behavioral management, oftentimes peer support, group support. So you put this treatment plan together and it really starts to work, which is super encouraging for the patient. And it's really great. That's what I like about our, our continuity clinic, right? So we get to work with people over time. The thing to keep in mind is that this is not a quick fix. So what I remind our residents and fellows is that 
for people with co-occurring disorders. So that means people who over time have developed a use disorder and or a serious mental illness. It's going to take, for half of them, it's going to take four to five years to get better. So we're not talking about, you know, just a mild alcohol use disorder, but we're talking about people who have been struggling significantly with depression, anxiety, alcohol, tobacco, you know, layer a couple things in. This is is not a quick fix, but this is designing a treatment plan. And over time, and that's going to be a couple years, half of them are going to start to get better. The other half are going to stay in treatment, and it's going to take them a little longer. Um, Everybody eventually starts to settle down, but it's not a quick fix. Yeah. This has been uh, wonderful. I think as we wrap up, I'd ask if there's that overarching recommendation regarding, you know, trying to avoid withdrawal. So I'm sure that there's a certain level that people are currently drinking and maybe we have people that are listening, are hearing this and thinking maybe I should cut back and maybe we don't want them to 100% stop cold turkey. We do not want that. We do not want that. That's life-threatening. And um, certainly people can die from that, you know. So that's when we encourage people, if you're feeling shaky and sick, that's when we want people to come into our emergency room. Um, or if you have a primary care physician, you can discuss it with that person. Um, but we never want people to try to cold turkey it at home um, because you can die. Yeah. Um, so it's very, very, very dangerous. Yeah. And I think it sets up well for, again, for like small victories, right? So if you're trying to cut down, like don't think about trying to remove all of the alcohol at one time because that level at what people withdraw is variable. Um, think about trying to remove it slowly but surely and take it one day at a time, right, Julie? Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth, yep. Jeremy. I'm even wearing my my one day at a time shirt. Oh, are you? I didn't see that. Oh my goodness! It's in Spanish. I don't know. It was a cute little thing I saw at Target. I was like, oh, that's cute. Uh, it's <laughs> it's such a corny corny slogan on a bumper sticker, but it's true. It's very true. We're going to be examining a lot of different type of resolutions. This is one that comes up quite a bit in my my brief research. It seems abstaining from a substance or trying to decrease our use from a substance such as alcohol is. It's within the top 10 easily of resolutions uh, every single year. So I'm glad we were able to talk about this. Uh, Gail, thank you for giving us insight into what you do and insight into some of this information. If people wanted to learn more information about you or maybe where you work out of, how do people find you? Um, I I try to find myself on the refresh website. <laughs> Don't do that. I did that once and it scared the crap out of me. So, I mean, the good news about our addiction services at Rush is they're really becoming so much more robust than they were several years ago. I think if you go to the Department of Psychiatry, which houses our addiction services, you can find your way to us. Um, Or you can just always email me directly or calling the uh, access call center and just asking for some help. But it it should be a lot easier. And that's a big old barrier to cure uh, because Rush is a big, complex, fantastic place. Yeah, it is. It is. Yep. Wonderful. As we move into 2023, if you can subscribe and maybe one friend you think would like this, uh, ask them to subscribe. It helps the show. Julie, you want to wrap us up? Yeah, I just want to thank uh, uh, Gail Bosch so much for being here with us. I think this is I think is one of those um, those texts that we don't get that often, you know, that people, they ruminate and they kick that around in their head of oh, maybe I should cut down my drinking, but I'm scared to say that to somebody. I'm scared to, you know, so I think you know, this is this is a, a problem that I think a lot of people run into and mm-hmm. it can be very isolating. And I think the more that we bring these out into the light, the more normalized they are and the more, you know, hopefully we open doors to people to examine their relationships with their substances and know that there are wonderful 
resources out there that people that are that are trained and caring and excellent that are there to help us and have really great ways of doing it safely um and oftentimes you know yeah uh connecting with the community of, of support so that it's wonderful so yeah i would just say let's all take it one day at a time and uh ask your doctor friends ask your doctor friends thanks julie thanks jeremy <laughs> The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Mm-hmm.